Welcome to the Shaky Experience. My name is James Richard Lane. Today, we'll be speaking volume with Graham of Tokyo Police Club. Tokyo Police Club is an indie rock four-piece band based in Ontario, Canada. Founded in 2005, the project has released five full-length albums and a few EPs. The band most recently celebrated their 10-year anniversary of their chart-topping album, Champ, last year, and will be going on an anniversary tour this fall. Their music has been featured in NPR, Rolling Stone, Pitchfork, Spin Magazine, and more. They have performed Late Night with David Letterman, The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson, Coachella, Bonnaroo, Glastonbury Music Festival, and many, many others, and have toured across the world. They've literally done it all, and I love it so much. Such an amazing band. Without further ado, Graham of Tokyo Police Club, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm not sure which charts Champ ever topped. Uh, you know, I'm going to let you have it. Let's just assume that there was one out there. You topped them in my my charts. I, I had my own little board growing up. I was like, you know what? This album is number one for me. That counts. That's as good to me as any billboard fancy pants high <laughs> sales chart, you know? <laughs> so Champ's 10-year anniversary was last year. Talk to me about that. And what's the feeling that this album is now a decade old? You know, Champ was our second full length. And you mentioned we had some EPs. Our first release was an EP, which also we toured on for two years. It was sort of like our big entry of the scene. So it, it feels like it was an album for all intents and purposes. So by the time we hit the Champ 10-year anniversary, We'd already done a couple of 10-year anniversary things. So that, at least, it's the first time you have a 10-year anniversary. It's quite striking. It's quite arresting doing it for 10 years. By the time it rolled around with Champ, it, that was not such a surprise. But it, in, my, in sort of the narrative center of my brain, whatever part of my brain tells, the, tells myself the story of my life, Champ really feels like a dividing line. It kind of feels like anything before Champ, I almost lump in with like my my high school days at this point. It was kind of like college, I guess, you know, it was the first four years at, at high school. We were all barely, I mean, we were, you know, we were barely old enough to drink in the States for like the first three, four years of our career, <laughs> yeah. uh, which made touring interesting. But anyway, so, so realizing that it had been not only 10 years since we started the band, not only 10 years since we released our first EP, but 10 years since we did the thing that felt like, you know, the, the sort of first tentative shaky steps into, you know, whatever, version of adulthood we were entering. I mean, you know, it's it's just another milestone on the uh, inexorable path from the cradle to the grave, I guess. But uh, any opportunity to take stock, especially of something that went as well as Champ and that we're as proud of as Champ and that seems to have meant as much to as many people as Champ did. It's, you know, it was a nice little ocean of um, celebration in the middle of the weird pandemic. I should say island, I suppose, of celebration in the ocean of the pandemic. Champ is one of those albums that you can go back to so many times. The lyrics are catchy, the synth, the guitar, the drums, the bass, everything about it. The album cover amazing album cover like just everything about this album is so much fun and provides so much light it's such a upper picks you up takes you for a ride the track list is laid out is so perfect too from favorite food to favorite color breakneck speed and so forth i remember back in the day when you guys released the hands in reverse video i think it was like on myspace and i was so blown away i was so excited it was somebody walking up a set of steps and then dave is just on the balcony performing hands in reverse and i just uh lyrics just grabbed me right away these beautiful indie style lyrics and just remember like singing that on my way to like college and stuff like that what was it like writing this album do you remember how that process was and what was some of the feelings and emotions going into it at that time uh i mean i i it's I barely remember anything about it, but I sort of, you know, I, re I reach my hand into the, the memory pool and what, what comes out every time is little snatches of like pretty fun, easy times. We definitely didn't have it dialed in at all. Like, you know, so, like when we wrote our most recent record, TPC, for instance, we found the sound or we found the angle kind of right away. And it, you know, it made writing every song a little easier because you had a sense of like what gravity you were orbiting around. Champ wasn't like that at all. It did not come into focus, like what it was going to sound like really until we were in the studio. And so I remember being in the rehearsal space, like doing end of a spark for 
instance, and I was playing like the Wurlitzer electric piano and it had like a real, you know, alt country sort of sort of vibe. And, and a lot of the songs on the record went through various, not alt country, but just different sort of like disparate genre, you know, indications <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know, something like Favorite Food that ended up opening the record. We got that one down pretty quick. You know, I, re- I remember figuring out that end thing with the, the you know, bah, 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 bah. Uh, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's that's the answer to that song. Or Favorite Color, you know, that one just kind of came out fully formed. Dave, Dave pretty much had it all locked in. We, we didn't really know how to structure songs terribly well yet because our first couple of releases, all the songs were like two minutes. You know, they were all basically like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, outro stuff. And with Champ, we were, start, you know, getting a little older, a little more experienced. We're trying to write bridges. We're trying to write middle eights, solo in there. If you could get Josh to play a solo, which was like pulling teeth in those days. But she's too humble, too humble to play a guitar solo. Uh, with Rob Schnapp, who produced the record. And we did like a week of pre-production. So we got a rehearsal space in Los Angeles and uh, we just set up and we would play the songs and he would sit on the couch and, and listen to them and then sort of give us feedback. And it would, that was really where it all got corralled into being because, you know, uh, the song Big Difference on the record, you know, which is a pretty straightforward rock song, you know, good, like angular 2010s music. I, I don't remember what the original structure was, but I remember it was completely bananas. It was just, it was like verse, bridge, pre-chorus, instrumental chorus, bridge, bridge, solo. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't that out, out there, but it was, it was incredibly overthought. And the more, you know, you, it's really, really easy to hold on to a song too tight and to like, to get too tinkery with it and get too, way too clever with it. And so we went in with, you know, half the songs were underbaked, the other half were overbaked. And Rob would sort of listen to us play it and be like, that's interesting. Have you considered going verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus? I'm like, oh, damn, did you invent that? And he's like, no, it's <laughs> the structure of all rock music for a reason. Some of the songs need needed to be pulled more than that, they needed to be like, oh, that song doesn't have a bridge, it needs one. And other songs were like, that song has nine bridges, it needs to have one. Uh, so we were still young, you know, we were 22, 23, and we were just so like exuberant and bouncing around and like floppy Muppets. And the process of that album was really, you know, going across what feels like a really significant line between total mania, as far as writing goes, and, and something approaching discipline and know-how and understanding. And, you know, I think the record captures that energy. It still has that sort of floppy, youthful, uh, naive exuberance in there, but tempered with a bit of craft. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of our fans who would tell you that they feel like once we crossed that line, we, we left something on the other side of it that we could never get back. But, uh, it's what happens when you stick with a band, you know, they get better. I feel like it's a perfect album, honestly. Like, I feel like every track on this album could be a hit song. If not, it's a hit song to me, at least. You know, and kind of hearing what you were saying, how there's sort of a really big difference between some of the songs like End of a Spark to Favorite Food, Breakneck Speed, and so forth. Even Gone. Like, Gone has like kind of like this more like surfy, like fun beach pop sound to it. And then End of a Spark. Yeah, kind of like alt-country sort of version. And I was kind of even looking at your 10-year anniversary edition and seeing that Matt and Kim did a remix, Passion Pit did a remix. And I think I saw something about polka version of Breakneck. Did I read that right? That's just like, so we were, you know, we were putting together the the reissue and with like the bonus, well, back in the day, you'd call it a bonus disc. Now it's a bonus Spotify section. And, you know, we had a song from the sessions called $100 Day that was finished, mixed, and it got cut from the record at the last minute. And then somehow, never came out which is you know kind of astonishing in this age of endless content but so we knew we'd put that first uh we commissioned our friends matt and kim to do that gone remix we had a bunch of the remixes that came out at the time we thought were cool but we wanted to like sprinkle in a few more ingredients of like of the um the writing process of the record like i was outlining and you know we started when we were writing champ we bought a little, you know, a little Zoom recorder like you'd use to record an interview or whatever. Just because we were, wor- you know, we were working eight hours a day, we were writing all kinds of stuff, trying all sorts of ideas, and none of us are real um, theory-based musicians, so we couldn't write it down that reliably. So we just recorded everything we did so that we could refer to it later and be like, oh yeah, I think version 7B from December 9th is really the best version of the structure. <laughs> wow. And so we went back in to dig up what we could of those old recordings, and most of them are just like you know, much worse versions of the songs, but there was a few little jams or a few little snippets of just like loops and sounds that felt somehow in some, you know, ineffable way, they captured something essential about what it felt like to do those sessions. And the so-called polka breakneck, which I think was just the, you know, 
forgotten by time as to why someone called it that in 2009 <laughs> when they uploaded it. It's just like a little weird loopy jam uh, that has the ooze from breakneck speed in it. Uh, and it just felt, it just felt like the perfect little thing to break up, you know, the, the cool slick remixes and the fancy new tunes and stuff. Something a little more, a uh, little more off the cuff there. And it's so interesting to me to how analytical you are to the tracks. It's really neat to hear you go really in depth into the song structures, the back history of these tracks and like where they came from. It fascinates me because I think a lot of artists, they usually will write just like a quick indie pop song. It'll hit the airwaves and that's kind of it. But it's really nice to hear how much craftsmanship you put into your work as a musician. What would you say are some of the fondest memories working on this album? Uh, well, just as an aside before I answer that, everyone has good craft. I think music- musicians like to let it be believed that they're just sort of tossing this stuff off the cuff. Like, oh, this old thing uh, that was a hit? Yeah, whoops. Very, very rare in the 21st century for someone to accidentally write a good song. You know, generally you come up with a good idea accidentally and then you work very intentionally to make the good idea into a good song that people understand. When we were doing the pre-production with Rob, we were on like a little stage. And so, you know, there's monitors on the stage so you can hear yourself. And he was on the other side of the monitors and we do a take of a song sometimes. And he'd be like, guys, that's that's great. I can tell you're really excited about it. We need to figure out a way to make what you're feeling come across the monitors so that I understand. And like translating the emotions that you feel when you're writing the song to something that the audience will feel when they listen to it is that's kind of the job of songwriting. You know, that's kind of the craft element of it. And any band that's worth a half a damn has that craft. And, and, you know, some of them are are more thoughtful and intentional about it than others, but everybody has it, you know, and you talk to any musician about that craft and, and you'll start to hear those insights pretty quickly. So that's not, it's not unique to me or to us, but fond memories of making champ, just being in LA like that. We'd never spent that much time in Los Angeles before. And in fact, every time we've gone previously, it was for like one or two days on tour. And cause there's so much media and stuff in LA, it would always be jam packed from, you know, the moment you got up basically until the moment you went to bed, you'd be going to some interview, going to some session, going to sound check, going to a photo shoot, going here, going there, uh, which was, you know, fun in its way, but also driving around LA. You're the first time you've been there. You're stuck in traffic. You don't, it's, it's not a city that reveals itself quickly. In my opinion, you need more than two days at a time to really get the gist. So we were all a little bit reluctant to go spend three months there making the record. Uh, and myself, most of all, I really was like, can we, is there any way we can avoid this? I think it's going to bum everyone out and be a bad vibe for us. And then we were, you know, we're there for three weeks and I'm like, oh, I should move here. <laughs> uh, and, you know, just getting to know the city for the first time and, and being there, we were there in Canadian winter. So the weather's beautiful. I'd never done that before. I never fled Toronto in the winter for sunny, uh, sunny shores. You know, we rented a car, we're driving around, we're 22, 23. We have a big budget for the first time in our career and we're, spe- we're spending it, but, you know, on making a great record, but also on like, you know, we, we stayed in like a big apartment where everyone had their own bedroom. Not, that's not true. Everyone almost had their own bedroom. Everyone had their own bed or air mattress. And, you know, we were, we were eating pretty well. You're getting takeout for lunch and dinner every day and uh, going to movies on the weekend, going to bars. We had some friends out there who were showing us the city and like the, the making of the record itself was, was fun and pretty like by the time we got into the studio we, we pretty much had everything dialed in so it was fun and relatively painless but I don't you know I don't have that many memories from the studio itself compared to like the recreation on either side of it just because you know I went in and I played my keyboard parts uh, dialed in keyboard tones and that was enjoyable but perhaps not quite as uh, exciting as going to like 19 bars on a Saturday afternoon I think that translates into some of the sound as well once again going back to the track Gone that very like beach poppy vibe to it it almost sounds like that could be an LA influenced track I remember when I used to live in Los Angeles those vibes stuck around for a while just sitting by a pool or hanging out in the ocean or whatever the case was and like the takeout food there is pretty amazing so that would put me in a really good mood as well was there any pressure when you guys as a band after releasing such a powerful EP oh my god emphasis such a powerful EP a lesson in crime just the most amazing thing since sliced bread basically did you feel there was oh we better deliver on this album or did it feel just more natural and you're like you know we're gonna release what we release oh no it was we have to deliver on this album 
uh, that that was Champ was like the big swing in that way, where we did a lesson in crime, and and that was obviously your first record. It was very off the cuff. It was very natural. We were not thinking about much when we wrote it, as you maybe could tell. Uh, and it would have been worse if we had been thinking, you know. And then Elephant Shell was like we. It's the, it's the old, old story. Every single band has this exact same tale where, oh, and then the follow-up record, we had no time to work on it. We're touring all the time, but it was important. It was, you know, Elephant Shell came out and, and in retrospect, it did quite well. Uh, but at the time we had really, really high hopes for it. And we felt like we had fallen short. You know, we didn't, because it's still like in those days, it felt like you could be the biggest band in the world making indie rock. You know, ultimately no one really became that. But there was a second where I was like, oh my God, like our Interpol going to be Radiohead? It is very funny to think back on that time. But that's really, it felt like that. And it felt like we were in the mix. You know, I guess like Vampire Weekend is probably the band that like came out of that whole time on top. And, yeah. but everyone, everyone was gunning for that brass ring. Elephant Shell was a, a solidly successful indie record. And, you know, the older I get, the more I'm grateful for a solidly successful indie record. Because, you know, we... uh I see royalties from Elephant Shell, which I cannot say about all of her records. But we, at the time, were like, no, 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 we need to have a hit. We need to have a song that's on the radio. We need to be Death Cab for Cutie. We need to get, we need to be <laughs> so we, we signed to a bigger label and that's why we went to work with Rob. We wanted to work with like a, you know, a fancier producer. Not Rob, Rob would be furious if he knew I described him as fancy. But you know, <laughs> he's got a great track record. He's made some some huge, incredible, important records, and you know he's he's on a list of rock producers that you hire if you want to up your game. And and we really wanted to up our game. You know that the A and R guy from the label was in the studio sometimes, like giving ideas. And there was many phone calls. And you mentioned the sequencing of the record earlier. And sequencing that record was like a real battle. And everyone had opinions, and everyone was arguing about it. And like. It way too much because the thing about sequencing a record is whatever the sequence is when it goes out the door, everyone just internalizes it that way. And then 10 years later, they're like, damn, that sequence seems like brilliant, dude. Yes. Uh, whether you just like you spent a year working on it or you like drew names out of a hat, it's just like that's how people learn the record. So to them, that's that's the only way the record exists. But yeah, it was, it was huge pressure. We worked really hard on the songs. We didn't we didn't do a lot of the things that that now you would probably do in that thing. We didn't bring in like co-writers. You know, we, we, we've tried that other times, but we didn't do that with Champ. We didn't, you know, we tried to make the songs as good as they could be, but no one was, no one in the creative team, Rob nor the band was talking about changing the songs to be more palatable for, for radio or for whatever else. So there, there was a lot of pressure both externally and internally, you know, we, we wanted it to be good too, but it didn't manifest in, in some of the negative ways that it can manifest, which is, which is really lucky. And I don't know if that's down to us being naively bullheaded or if Rob was protecting us or if, or if our manager at the time was protecting us. But in, in retrospect, that album probably could have got messed with way, way more than it ever was. So a lot of pressure, but I don't know how much it impacted the final result, except for positive. So I guess... I should count myself lucky. It is such an important record. And it's funny because I feel like Champ really delivered so hard that I love Elephant Shell. Don't get me wrong. But when I think of Tokyo Police Club, Champ is definitely the first thing that comes to mind, followed by a very, very close A Lesson in Crime. Did you ever feel you followed the blueprints of some of your earlier work and laid that out to have your other albums be successful? Successful, or do you feel like you follow a different trajectory every time you write and record? Uh, well, you're always, I mean, you're always building on what you've done. That's unavoidable, but because it's unavoidable, you don't really have to think about it. And, you know, we would joke. I remember when we were writing Champ, we would joke about how all of our songs were two minutes long. And we would do like, we would we would goof off. You know, when you're rehearsing, writing eight hours a day, five days a week, you, uh, you have to goof off a lot to keep the energy up. And we would do things. We're like, okay, what we're gonna do is set a time. We're gonna start playing the song or like jamming. It was breakneck speed. We're gonna start jamming breakneck speed, and we'll stop no matter what's happening at exactly two minutes. We'll stop if it's mid bar or whatever. Just like that'll be funny, and it'll be a funny joke. But <laughs> all our songs are two minutes, and we did it. And this was an earlier version of breakneck speed. And at the two minute mark, we stopped like at the exact final moment of the song as we were performing it. We we're like, whoa, damn. That really, uh, that really works. Uh, and I think the song ended up being like four minutes and something on the record. So obviously we learned how to expand and it it's so much better. You know, the, a two minute version of that song couldn't breathe. It would suffocate. But, you know, knowing that stuff is, it's all ingredients. I think, you know, when, when not that we really understood this at the time, but when you're doing creative work, whether it's the inspiration ideas phase or the tinkering 
thoughtful analytical crafting phase, you're really just kind of like, you're just making decisions and the decisions ultimately are kind of gut based when you're doing creative work and you have to trust that everything you've learned and everything you've done and everything you've experienced and internalized is informing your decision-making process in some way. And that that's, you know, that that's ultimately your voice such as it is. And then you have to let, you have to not think about any of that stuff and just make the decisions. This is referencing your, you know, your older work or referencing other, you know, well, I mean, you'll, we'll copy other bands ideas constantly. Obviously every band does that, you know, it'll get mentioned, but you're never sitting down mapping it out. You're just like halfway through one jam. You're like, Oh, we should do the Coldplay thing there. Yeah. Let's do it like that. And you never think about it again. And again, you just have to trust that your collective hive mind will flip that idea on its head and turn it into something original. It'll be filtered. It stops being a copy and just starts being another source of, uh, of ideas that's yeah. that's kind of all you can do is pick, pick stuff up and hope for the best yeah and that's really interesting to hear you talk about other bands again you mentioned that a little bit earlier with how interpol sounded like radiohead or vampire weekend really making it as the bigger band i'm just kind of like picturing you guys in like a group chat with like all these bands like Vampire Weekend, Passion Pit, Matt and Kim, and it's like, who's gonna make it? Which one of us, which gonna be like, I don't know, the the bigger band this year, or like something like that. Just but like within like friendly competition. And in my mind, I always thought that you guys were like the biggest band out of all of those bands, really. I mean, I'm pretty sure you did a tour with Weezer. Yeah, that was pre-champ in 2008. We uh we opened for them and Angels and Airwaves. Uh, America. Yeah, kind of a while ago, but still, I mean, the fact that you guys are opening up for such a legendary band, headlining plenty of tours, as well as so much more. It's I always thought that Tokyo Police Club was kind of like the bigger band out of a lot of those other bands. It was always cool, like being able to mention you guys to my friends and my friends already knew who you guys were. And I had like a poster of your band, like growing up when I was in high school. And I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I felt like I could connect with your band so much is how you were mentioning sort of in your early 20s is when you wrote Champ and when I was listening to Champ was in my early 20s as well. So it feels as a listener, it really helped translate better for me being around the same age and probably going through similar life changes perhaps. But talking a little bit about your tour, coming from Canada to the US, did you ever find any challenges breaking into the music scene here? And what would you say that ride was like for you? We were really lucky, but we were also really deliberate. When we first, first started, we, we didn't know much, but we were looking around Canada man there's a lot of canadian bands who are trapped in canada you know who are just and you can make it work you can make a living you can even make a good living going back and forth across the country but we were really determined right from the jump that we would get that we would be an american success too uh it was really important to us and so we're like just get us american tours we'll do anything we went out i remember we got offered a support slot for this band enon who are incredible or were incredible. They're not together anymore. But, and we, you know, a band that we had loved before we ever started Tokyo even. And we got an offer for this tour and it was like, you know, a hundred bucks a night, like not even enough to pay for gas and hotels. Oh man. Cause you know, they were, you know, they're playing clubs. They, they weren't shortchanging us. That's just the money there was. And I, even like our booking agent and manager were like, there are better tours that will come along. You probably shouldn't do this one. It might not be like, might not be the best use of a month. You're going to definitely lose money and you're going to play in front of like, you know, the opening band on a club tour, you're not going to play in front of that many people. Uh, and we were like, no, it's an American tour. We are doing it. We're getting out there. We'll do whatever. <laughs> and, you know, that also that, you know, that comes with being 1920. Like it's you're nothing. It, it rolls right off your back. Right. It's not going to tire you out. We still live with our parents at that point. So we were like, sure, we'll lose the money. Who cares? Uh, which is in, in, in retrospect, quite a privileged position. But we just went out and we grounded out. And then, you know, we got a tour with Cold War Kids, you know, quite, quite a bit bigger and really helpful and formative. So, you know, we we made sure to do it. But at the same time, lots of bands try to do it and don't have the, the luck in the right place, right time thing that we had. And we came out right when like Canadian indie music was really in the spotlight. Like Arcade Fire was had, you know, broken social our, scene, broken social scene, metric stars, like all those bands were kind of having their big hello moment in the sun. And had been like that had started, you know, two years before. And that was a huge inspiration us on us starting in the first place. You know, that was that was the music that we were really excited about when we were in high school. So that was 
obviously formative. And so, you know, we were a band from the same place in, in pretty much the same tradition, but with like a scrappier, garage rockier sort of thing to it. So <laughs> gave people something else to focus on. And, and those two ingredients combined to get us some attention. You know, Pitchfork wrote about the songs and wrote about the albums and wrote about the tours. American publications would pay a little bit of attention. And that meant that people who bought a ticket to see Enon or who bought a ticket to see Cold War Kids would come in a little earlier because they wanted to see us. And, and that, you know, just that little bit of momentum or that little injection of energy sort of like right from the start made all the difference, you know? And if that, if Lesson in Crime had come out a year earlier or a year later, who's to say if we could have made a dent? Totally. I'm, I'm so grateful that we did, you know, just if nothing else for the change of scenery, to be able to tour more, more than one country. Yeah, I, it feels like it really was meant to be like a lesson in crime coming out and you guys being able to open for Cold War Kids. Wow, huge success immediately. I remember that too. I, I love that attitude. I love the forward thinking. This is it. This is our lives. We're going to make music and we're not settling. That's such a beautiful passion to have, such a great drive. And did you have any side jobs when you were first starting off as a band? Like, were you guys working at like pizza pizza or like or second cup or anything like that that was a great way to do your research uh good good ontario chain drops there yep yep new york audience yeah i mean yeah when we started at the end of high school and then fresh out of high school so everyone just had jobs as a matter of course you know mostly because you're like oh, i guess i gotta save for university more fools ask all the i didn't the other three guys worked at value village which in the states i guess you call savers but it's like the vintage store which oh. is great they would you know, you'd get um, you'd get steep discounts, shall we say? Oh. Um, arts full of you know cool vintage T-shirts, which in two thousand five, <laughs> real real prime deal. I worked at Chapters, which is like Canadian Barnes and Nobles, but pretty quickly, not because we started making enough money to quit our jobs, but because we started to be gone too much to keep our jobs. You yeah. know, I remember going like, getting back from a month away to chapters and being like, okay, doke, so I need to book off another month. And they were like, maybe you might want to consider quitting today. <laughs> uh, and then that, that was kind of the last time I ever had a real job. So yeah, so, you know, we, we super exciting, you know, no one was like, I feel like you, you get a good band store where they're like, and then at night I worked for like the coroner and I was like driving a hearse all night. And then I'd wake up and go to rehearsal. But uh, nobody in Tokyo Blues Club has anything quite like that. I guess the Value Village guys had to do inventory overnight sometimes. <laughs> That's so funny. I would love to see your bandmates just all work at a thrift store together. That sounds like a really good time. Like it seems very satire based. That would actually be a really great music video. I would love to see the Tokyo Police Club like thrift store music video. <laughs> my, friend, my friend is a television writer and he keeps bugging me to write a screenplay about it. So Ooh. he's like, you gotta write, like, it's gonna be like Empire Records for a new generation man you got to do it let's do it let's do it i love it anyone out there wants to give me you know a million dollars to write it in order to find it do you feel there's a certain message you're trying to convey to the people that listen to your music graham no Just i don't i mean there, i'm sure there are messages to be drawn from the music i'm sure if someone sat down and did a, a close read or even a cursory read of like the entire catalog of whether it's lyrically or you know the musical decisions or whatever else i'm sure that they could make a, a cogent case that there are like staple themes in there you know it's ultimately at the end of the day it's the same people writing all the songs and we're interpreting the world as we interpret it that's going to come out in the music but we've certainly never discussed anything like a message and and i personally am like strictly opposed to uh being didactic in art i think it's the the opposite of the point it's that's for that's for that's for other other disciplines. Uh, I don't think I don't think there's much use, especially nowadays, to to trying to put messages in music because they want it. First of all, it probably won't work. You have to, I can't imagine how skilled you have to be to do anything approaching like a a compelling and successfully delivered clear message in pop music. And and beyond that, it just sounds like it's not using the the form to its best potential. You know, I don't think that's what music is is particularly good at compared to other things fascinating okay well what would you say makes a tokyo police club song to you i I, just, I don't have to worry about that you know we write it and it's especially that's a beautiful thing about a band is 
there's four of us and the four of us write the songs. You know, we collaborate in, in different degrees. Sometimes Dave's demos are pretty fleshed out. Other times they're, they're pretty spare. But ultimately, every song goes through the hive mind. It gets filtered through our like collective cheesecloth. And it's a Tokyo Police Club song. And that's true whether it's a one minute and 44 second sort of like angular OOs indie bop or if it's a seven minute long alt rock washy 90s delay jam or you know if the next record we make is like an instrumental synthesizer odyssey which it will not be but if it is if the four of us make it that's a tokyo please love song i love it okay it's everyone everyone else's problem to try and reconcile it if it doesn't make sense (laughs) let's dive in to some fun questions here graham so I am going to say a word or a phrase, and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I say it. Citizens of Tomorrow. My brain's just like Tokyo Police Club song. I know how to play that. My fingers just start playing the riff. You can't see it. But that's Amazing. If you're going to just say song names, all I'm, my brain is just going to be like, okay, switch the keyboard to that setting and that setting. Now, <laughs> do that. No, don't forget to sing the harmony in the bridge. Okay. Toronto. Home. Indie band. Uh, the first word that genuinely came to mind was Bible, because when we were in high school, I found at the New Market, which was our hometown, at the New Market Public Library, I was like looking for books about music because I was getting into music. And there was a Canadian band in the 90s, like a successful alt-rock Canadian band called Moist. And the guitar player from Moist wrote like a, a, like a how-to book for starting out as an indie band. It's like how to book gigs and how to like rehearse and how to pay for stuff and how to buy a van. And it was called the Indie Band Bible. Fascinating. Okay, cool. What was the band again? One more time. Moist. Okay. All right. I think some people are going to have to look that up now. They had hits in Canada. They were big. All right. I'm I'm curious now. Hit song. Somebody else's problem. <laughs> good one. Music festival. It's good times, man. Particular music festival. I guess I still think of Coachella when I think of music festivals. Uh, you know, we 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 did it twice, but we last did it like 11 years ago, so it's not exactly my stomping grounds at any point, but it's just the music festivaliest music festival that we've played. It's 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 sensory overload in every sense. Oh yeah, totally. Really good times. Okay, this next series of questions is underrated. What is the most underrated Tokyo Police Club song to you? Hmm. Uh, man, it, that's I consider our entire catalog to be vastly underrated. Objectively speaking, of course, there's a tune on our on our latest record called "Simple Dude." which was a single, uh, I just think it's like, it's just a banging 10 out of 10 alt rock song. It's like everything I love about guitar music. And it's, you know, it did fine. Nobody, nobody said it was bad or anything. But when we wrote it, I was like, this is it, man. Arenas, here we come. it's a great track by the way like i love that track as well and i like how it starts off dave's vocals just hit so hard on that so yeah i I feel you on that one criminally most underrated album of all time um i mean there's a zillion of them but uh putting the days to bed by the long winters which is from like 06 or 07 that band just i feel like should be mentioned among the indie rock greats uh and and that album in particular it's the last album they they ever made to date and i feel like if it had got its due they might have kept making records yes okay then i'll have to check them out i'm unfamiliar with them as well actually who is the most underrated musician that everyone should look up right now let me think it's so hard to i'm old enough now that i don't have to pay attention to like the cultural canon of stuff so well it's like you were saying you know you're you said like oh i always thought tokyo police club was big i all the bands i listen to now i'm like yeah i I assume these bands are all important and big and i'm sure that's not the case with all of them but i get to just exist in my own little world where all superstars i'll just shout out oh you know i know who i'll shout out you mentioned before we went on air you mentioned that you you first saw us at the myspace secret show in baltimore yep uh, which we played with that the poster for that show is on my parents wall to this day and mm. so i always remember that we played that show with our friends in the mellow grove band yeah we yeah broke up years ago but also we're another band who i just always thought like why what's wrong with everyone that this band isn't huge. Like we should be opening for them. Yeah. Their album Planets Conspire is just, I think it's just a masterpiece and they they never got their due and now it's too late. 
but do yourself a favor, check it out. Yeah, they were really good. And that show was so awesome, by the way. It was in the old Talking Heads Club in Baltimore, which is right next to our city hall. It doesn't exist anymore. That venue shut down, but it was like such a tiny itty bitty venue and hearing you guys just play a lesson in crime and hearing you guys play elephant shell as well during that time i was like yes and like myspace was doing it right like they had a free secret show like why isn't facebook or instagram doing this by the way like i get to see one of my all-time favorite bands for free just because i have a myspace account okay yeah i'm i'm cool with this i can live with this speaking of one of my all-time favorite bands who are some of your favorite newer artists right now? Uh, oh, I was just listening to my like playlist I made of stuff I've been digging lately. So I should I should pull it up. I always forget when people ask me these questions. Oh man, it, well they're not exactly a new artist, but the new Low album has been kind of on endless repeat in my apartment for the last week or so. It's just incredible. I, I like that Claude album a lot. I really like Pale Waves. Have you heard them? No, familiar. Like, yeah. It's it's. You know, the 90s are coming back aesthetically, I think. Hail Waves is so far, to my my mind, uh, which is steeped in, in 90s alt-rock nostalgia, they're doing easily the best and most credible job of sort of, you know, throwing back to that those, those days. I like really, that. Really like Girl in Red. Have you heard that record? You were hitting me with all these ones I don't know, which really surprises me because usually I'm that person that will send like all the tracks people don't know. Like... I've been really into these artists, um, Parallel Offense, Life One Planets, Kilo Kish. I've been diving back to Thieves Like Us, Vinyl Williams, Deep Tan. Do you know any of those? I, a couple of them rang bells, but this, what I'm getting from this is there are a lot of bands. Yeah, we, we just need to swap playlists. I think that's all there is to it. What is your favorite lyric or verse Tokyo Police Club has ever written? That's a really good question. I My relationship to the lyrics is obviously diff- different probably than most people's, although it's also not that different because I'm not, I mean, very seldom am I helping write the lyrics, you know, generally that's Dave's department. And so I'm hearing them before everyone else, but ultimately I'm just hearing them and interpreting them just as anyone else would. And yet then, then I have to, I were on stage playing, like I was about to say simple dude again. Uh, And I do, I think the lyrics are great, but I also am like, well, is that just because I stand on the stage playing the song and, and singing along sort of off the microphone and it, it makes my heart sing, you know, is that, yeah, I guess I can't be objective about it at all. And I usually try to be objective about lyrics in particular is sort of one of my areas of interest, but let me think, you know, there's a song, this is a bit of a half answer, but Dave did a tune with uh, RAC. Oh yeah. I dude, I remember that so much. Be good. Right. Uh, no. So RAC, RAC remixed be good as well as a few other Tokyo songs, but then he made a record of like collaborative originals where him and a bunch of like artists that he'd done remixes with like wrote new songs together. And so Dave contributed the song called tourist, which is actually a song that we jammed a bit when we were trying to write Champ, but it never like never made sense with Tokyo and never got that far down the road. Okay. But then him and Andre put it together, just the two of them. Uh, and I actually did help with like, I wrote one verse of that, but the rest of the song no, right, is super good. And it's probably not a coincidence that it's not a Tokyo song. Maybe I'm hearing it a little more, uh, a little more clearly or a little more objectively, but that one has always really stuck with me. All of Dave's solo stuff actually is, is fantastic lyrics. So it must That's just be, fine. I can't listen to TPC stuff objectively. That's that's what I'm getting out of this answer. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. That's a, that's a fair answer. Who has been your favorite band to go on tour with, and why? I mean, I loved touring with Enon back in the day. That might have been just because it was like a fresh tour, but they were just super nice, and we we looked up to them, and we loved their records so so much. And then it was the fr- you know it was kind of the first time we toured with a band, and so it was my first experience of being like, oh, they're just people, and not only are they just people, but they're like super sweet welcoming generous cool people who will like hang out with us and like you know let us stay at their house when we're in philadelphia and everything so that always left a major impression on me just because you know it's all you know when you're when you're a freshman and the uh, the seniors let you sit at their table it always feels pretty special absolutely i, I love going out with weezer for, for you know not because we were hanging out with weezer or staying at their houses or anything i wish but because it's like it, it's Weezer. You know, we get, I get to always say that we toured with Weezer, that we opened for them in like big arenas and stuff. And yeah. I, you- I'll never know what it did for our career or if it did anything, but it sure was like an incredible dream like 
month of my life. That's oh yeah, I'm sure you have some like amazing tour stories from that. And like I, you mentioned earlier that you have the poster from that MySpace secret show. Still, I'm hoping that you have like just like a room full of like just random memorabilia, posters, photos, and stuff like that from all your tours. Just like one room is just like dedicated to all this stuff. it's it's very kind of you to assume that I have more than one room. Uh, I do not. Uh, <laughs> my apartment is one giant room. There's a bin in my loft that's full of memorabilia, but the posters are all on my parents' walls. Where do you live now, Graham? I live in Toronto. Speaking of which, do you have a tour story, just like an outrageous tour story of maybe having too many drinks or just kind of like a wild experience going on tour with Weezer or Passion Pit, Matt and Kim. I'm sure those guys are pretty wild to tour with. I've I've had the chance to hang out with them a couple of times and Matt and Kim rule. We know we know them from way back in the day. We like I remember seeing them at South by Southwest. I think it was our first South by Southwest. And it's got there used to be a venue there's still a venue in Austin called Emos, but it's not the same. It's like sort of more in the in the heart of things, like around Red River and Sixth, uh, which is you know the, the sort of intersection that South by Southwest seems to revolve around. And it had an indoor part and an outdoor part, and we were playing the outdoor part. You know, it's, it's hot as blazes outside, and we're nineteen. We've got these big X's on our hands to even be allowed in there, and we're sort of wandering around, just completely overwhelmed by all of it. There's like a million gigs everywhere you look, and everyone's in a band. And you know, we're we're st- we still live with our parents at this point. Here we are set loose in this, uh, you know, sort of zany paradise, indie, early house show gig style. Matt and Kim were playing inside before we were supposed to play outside. And I remember just being like, oh, no, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> you are not good enough. And, you know, not, not that they were just they were doing what they do, you know, and we just toured with them when TPC came out a couple of years ago. We did a big U.S. tour opening for them. And it was so incredible to see how like that wild, uncontainable exuberance that was part of their show when they were crammed onto this tiny stage. And like, you know, they were they were unpolished. Matt's glasses were falling off and, and the drums seemed like they're about to tumble on. <laughs> and then now they're playing, you know, Brooklyn Steel on this giant stage for thousands of people who adore them. And yet and it's totally, you know, it's way more deliberate and they know what they're doing way more, but the heart is still exactly the same. And like the feeling of just unbridled joy that they, that they put in their set was like, there's a direct line from that, you know, dingy corner stage in Austin to the slick, beautiful, brand new Brooklyn Steel stage. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's so, that's so inspiring to me that they, their, their message, there's a message, you know, it's an emotional message. You can't describe it that accurately using words. But if you watch Matt and Kim show, if you've ever seen a Matt and Kim show, you know what they're saying. I have some Matt and Kim stories as well. I remember Matt like kicked off one of his converses and like he signed it and he just gave it to me. And I was like, this is so random, but I love this. And I had- That sounds about right. Yeah. (laughs) I had one of Matt's shoes for, for a while. I think I was supposed to interview them a few years ago. I don't remember what happened, but- yeah, they they are just such an incredible band. They always bring it kind of like the the balloons, the confetti, the fun. Kim's energy is so intense. And I mean that in the best way possible. Like she just like delivers so hard. And to kind of like categorize you guys in like that same vein of bands, you know, we were talking a little bit about Matt and Kim and Passion Pit and stuff like that. Some of the other bands that I always thought of when I think of Tokyo Police Club are bands like Cut Copy. Beirut and so on. Like I remember discovering you guys. Like the way that I actually discovered you guys is kind of funny. Like someone had your track, Be Good, the RAC remix as their like MySpace song. Like when you click on someone's like MySpace page, the song like starts playing or whatever. I remember that track played and I was like, oh my God, what is this? And that's when like I went in full depth, just like checked out A Lesson in Crime and was obsessed ever since. I mean, A Lesson in Crime literally changed the way I dressed. It changed the way I talk. I created new friends from that EP. It 
did so much for me. And it just really speaks to me on so many levels. It's just so cool to kind of hear like your stories with these other bands too, because like, I also feel like a lot of these other bands helped shape me to who I am today. Like Beirut, I mean, is such a big one for me and the drums as well. And I love that you had the opportunity to go on tour with these bands and have these experiences. And one other thing touching on all of this as well is if you want this life, you can make it for yourself. And I think like within my position in broadcast, having the ability to kind of like interview you as well as other people and hear these stories kind of through these Zoom calls or face-to-face pre-pandemic has always been something really special to me. So touching a little bit about the history of the band and sort of the early days, and I keep on bringing up a lesson in crime. Do you remember your first live performance as Tokyo Police Club and what that was like? Yeah, vividly. We would, I mean, this was, MySpace was barely even existent at this point. So this was like, you got to find a message board where people who book shows are posting. And, and that that's the only way we knew how to get shows. Yeah. And we had we were all in a, in another band in high school with another guy. It was like a totally it was like a totally different vibe. What were you guys called? Suburbia. Okay. And may yeah. I ask who the other guy was? Yeah, our, our friend Will and I, me and Will formed the band, and like we were the singers and songwriters for it. And so it was a totally it was like a way more you know Wilcoe sort of you know we were trying to be Wilcoe. Yeah, I don't know if it actually really came across. It was a classic high school. It sounded it sounded just like most high school bands sound. It was good. And it was fun. And we played some gigs uh, through this guy in Toronto who put on shows at various venues. And so when we we started practicing and writing as Tokyo and we decided we wanted to do a show, we just hit him up. Uh, so there used to be, it's, it's long gone now, but there used to be a venue in Toronto called the Big Bop. And it was three floors and each floor was a different venue. So Ooh. <laughs> main floor, I'll see if I can get this right. I believe the main floor was called the Reverb. It was the biggest one. Second floor was called the Cathedral with a K. And the top floor was called Holy Joe's, which is like a little like intimate acoustic venue with old church pews to sit on. And so our first show was at the Cathedral, the one in the middle. Uh, I remember as the keyboardist, all of my gear was uh, borrowed. And I put that in heavy scare quotes from our high school. <laughs> I remember setting up, you know, the high school's Yamaha amp and the high school's Yamaha keyboard. And then I had a, a Casio keyboard that I borrowed from Will. So the only the keyboard stands belonged to me. Everything else was borrowed. Uh, did I ever return it? Who's to say? But I remember setting the two keyboards up in like an L formation, like I used to set up my keyboards. And I had them set so that I would be facing the guys, but the keyboards were between me and the rest of the band. And Dave was like, no, 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 man, we got to be able to rock together, like move the keyboards so that when you play them, you're facing away from us, but we can like come over and interact. And there's not a keyboard between us. And that was how I used my keyboards for the rest of our career until today. So that was a, that was a real fine things. And then the show itself was, um, I mean, probably bad. By, by current standards, you know, we didn't, we only had a few of the songs that wound up, like we would have played Nature of the Experiment, we would have played Cheer It On, we probably would have played Be Good, I think we would have written that by then. Yes. But we all, like, we also had this song called Ozington, which is named after a street in Toronto that was like a weird ballad, because we didn't know what we sounded like yet, we hadn't defined our sound, we hadn't been deliberate, so we just played whatever we wrote. And so for that song, we like draped a sheet over Greg's drum so he could do ambient drumming. And Josh had like a trumpet, a fishbowl, a microphone, and a delay pedal. And he like put the microphone in the fishbowl. <laughs> what? Doesn't play, he didn't and doesn't play trumpet, but he would sort of like honk horribly through the trumpet into the fishbowl. And then it would make this weird delayed like, we thought it was the coolest sound in the world. So I'm like, <laughs> psychotic like you know dying digital elephant but we were like yes this is amazing (laughs) so it was a lot of stuff like that you know you can always tell every once in a while we'll play a show and and the promoter will put like a local opener on the show and you can always tell when it's like a newish band who are young and it's one of their first shows because they'll have all kinds of like unnecessary gear and they'll do three weird gimmicky things like play a trumpet in a fishbowl and uh it always it always warms my heart because i'm like yes those guys are doing it. They're doing what we used to. That's so funny too, because like now you guys are like the indie rock, alternative rock, so forth. But I didn't really think of you as like kind of like a crazy, noisy, experimental band. Like hearing you say that kind of reminds me of like bands from Baltimore, to be honest, like Dan Deacon or Future Islands or even like a band from Rhode Island, like Lightning Bolt or something like that. So to hear you guys like come with this more experimental side, I mean, it's kind of in your song title, I guess. 
nature of the experiment. But still, I didn't expect that. That that. that was floating around in those days, right? Like broken social scene has cause equals time, you know, but they also have like, uh, I don't even like they're the weird instrumental jam songs that I forget the name of. And, you know, I guess. I guess that says it all that I can remember cause equals time because it has like a hook and a lyric, but those bands also did experimental stuff and they also did sort of, you know, ambient, noisy weirdness because it was sceny, you know, we'd, we'd go to Montreal and bands were doing weird stuff and it's there, you know, like Citizens of Tomorrow starting with a bunch of clapping and shouting is not uh, traditional so- songwriting per se. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know, Graham. I, I kind of disagree. Like, I feel like the clapping is really was part of the catch. That That's that's part of what makes it such a hit, in my opinion. Like, people start off clapping. Like, that's like when a drummer just does the, like, heartbeat thing. When I heard that song for the first time, I just remember thinking, like, oh, this is a hit song. But it's, like, not just a hit song. It's, like, an indie hit song, which is ten times better. That's interesting. And a hundred times less lucrative. (laughs) I'm not not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that, you know, some of that early weirdness still wormed its way into the the early songs. Okay. I Yeah, I could see that. Even Cheer It On, it's just a banger, right? It's just, like, really intense, like, sort of heavy. So maybe, you know, maybe kind of reflecting on your early stuff. Now that I think about it, I kind of can see more of the experimental side, which was fun. But I also love, like, the new stuff, TPCs. I feel that. If you could have any musician past or present cover a Tokyo Police Club song, which musician would it be and what song would it be? Yeah. Well, I'm, try- I'm trying to think of uh, something that's like halfway realistic or like an interesting, an interesting interpretation. Because I could, I could be easy just to be like, I think Radiohead should play uh, <laughs> Gone. You know, yeah. be, I, would, I would certainly get a kick out of that. I don't know how good it would be. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it would be exciting. I could see Radiohead doing Nature of the Experiment. I don't think that's that far off. I mean, you know, that bass tone, he could rock it. There's no doubt about it. It's a little little short for those guys. They hear in and out. Yeah. Or like maybe like Weezer doing Gone. Like that, that seems possible. I, I don't think that would be like too far out of the norm. I mean, you guys did like a cover album, like, you know, or like the Strokes doing, ooh, which one would the Strokes do of you guys? Oh my that, God. That almost, well, it'd be funny to make the Strokes do Cheer It On. So he has to yell Tokyo, please. Clap. Yeah. Cheer It On is the funniest choice for anyone to cover because there's no way around saying <laughs> yeah. it. I guess you could say like the strokes, but I doubt they would. But the strokes almost feels like it's um, redundant. You know, we were so plainly influenced by them. It's so plainly in that sort of general orbit. That's like, sure, here's the strokes doing. Really love, I'm, I'm a big Coldplay fan and we have taken a lot of inspiration from them. Wow. I think they're, they're doing something that's so unique in, in rock music right now. And I, I don't know what song I would pick for them to do, but I would love to see them like just, you know, reach into the discography, pick whatever excited them and do their own weird thing with it. Uh, I think it would, you know, I think it would illustrate something here to for maybe unsuspected about both bands. Listen to the math by Coldplay. That would be sick. Yeah. But like, mo- like modern Coldplay, not doing it with like the piano, like the scientist, like new synthy Max right. arena rock Coldplay. Let her rip. Did you say Max Hart? Max Martin. Wow. Nice. Good call right there. I like that. Name a band or artist that you believe is the best live show you've ever seen. It's tough because there's, you know, I've seen live shows where I'm like, that is an incredibly well executed concert performance. Like, wow, the lights are on point. The play- band is playing great. Because I can see it, you know, I can see it from that angle. Like, you know, if you listen to a radio show, you're hearing it differently than most people because you know the nuts and bolts of it. You know what goes into it. And so I can appreciate a really well pulled off live performance. But then there's also the ones where I'm like, that was, um, that meant something to me emotionally. And I forgot about whether or not it was good technically or objectively, or like, you know, by my usual standards. And I just got carried away with it. And those are obviously the ones that are, that are closest to my heart, because closest to my heart. But I'm trying to think, you know, the, like I saw Jeff Mangum from Nutramilk Hotel when he first did like his acoustic back oh, yeah. yeah. tour. That's like, that's kind of low hanging fruit, but it's just like that, man, that guy, talk about engaging with your, the, con- the context of your career and your work and yourself. Like he just sat down on stage in this old church in Toronto, surrounded by acoustic guitars, and played the songs. He didn't really talk so much. They, they just sounded great. And it was like just a, you know, a profound experience. And that's, if not the best show I've ever seen, it's one of the best, you know, there wasn't, wasn't a lot of fancy bells and whistles. There was no lights. There was, there was no other people on stage with him, but it was better for all that. If, you know, if, but uh, if you just wandered in off the street, you never heard of Nutramilk Hotel before, you might've been like, who is this lunatic caterwauling about, yeah. you know, 
but who cares? I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> I love that. I, I really love the stoicism that I feel like you embody. And it might not even be intentional. Like I'm a really big fan of the Daily Stoic with Ryan Holiday. And like, I just, I like the way that you're, you know, not my problem. Like that, that seems to be like kind of your mantra and some of the things I've noticed you've said. When you're in a band, a lot of stuff comes across your desk over the years and you have to audition. Like is writing a hit song my problem? You can make it your problem if you want to, you know, is like is making a million dollars my problem? You know, get, you know, whatever. There's a million things. Is being a big Instagram concern my problem? Do I want to have like a, a large digital footprint? And a very vital part of like longevity and being able to keep doing it and still get something out of it other than like, you know, a meager income, something spiritual out of it is to figure out what things are your problem and what things are not. And it's different for everyone, but I feel like I'm glad to hear you say so because I've put some work into discerning what is and is not my problem. I want to know what is your biggest music hot take? Well, I think, you know, I, I don't want to lean into it too hard and make it seem like it's like a bit because it's not, but I feel like my, my, sincere and overwhelming love for the work of Coldplay is I feel like I'm more out on an island with that take than many of my other takes. Uh, it's just like, I don't think people, you know, I think the days of people really hating Coldplay are long past. Like when yeah. they were, yeah. you know, I remember when they were new people, you know, they were like a punchline band. They were like, the, you know, they weren't quite Nickelback, but they were sort of in that direction. They're not Pretty like that. Much. People grudgingly respect them, but I, I really feel like, I don't know. I'm, all, I'm always like, this is, the most interesting and best working rock band to my mind. Uh, that's probably not strictly true, but that's sort of more the neighborhood I'm in. And I don't know if that's a hot take because everyone's like, sure, dude. But I'm like, no, but I really mean it though. <laughs> yeah. But quite sincerely. So that that's the one that I feel I express the most often that gets the most bemused looks. Beyond that, I don't know. I don't think I'm much of a hot taker. I have my own opinions about stuff and anyone who's in a band and has been in a band for more than a few years generally has pretty strongly held opinions about other music because if you're hired a contractor to do your house, you'll, you'll, you'll learn pretty quickly that they have pretty strong opinions about the work of the other contractors. Yeah. It's like, yeah, well, they're really good at being an electrician. And so when they see another electrician do it differently, they're going to have thoughts about that, you know? Not to not to reduce. Well, that's not true. I was gonna. I was gonna say not to reduce art to the level of being an electrician. But I think that's actually elevating art. And a good electrician is an artist in their own right. So it's all it's all just learning how to do your craft and, and learning how to you know engage with that part of the world. What an interesting metaphor, by the way. I love metaphors, and here you kind of compare like an electrician and the craftsmanship. Again, we were kind of talking about that earlier too, like the craftsmanship of like a musician and like how I said it earlier, it feels like certain musicians are able to just write a song and there's maybe not as much thought or structure into it. And then you kind of state it like, no, 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 like it's actually like kind of rare for that. And reflect on that. That's that's sort of like a laborer as well, like people that work in labor, they obviously studied this craft and they've been doing this for quite some time. And to know that, yeah, it may look easy on the outside, but it probably takes Chris Martin months, if not years to write some of the songs that they have released. Like, you you know, if you watch a quarterback, you know, fall back and like look over the entire field and, and you know, find that perfect pass like just impossibly like defying physics it seems to phase through three guys bodies right to the receiver you know that looks like art to me it looks like it's it just it's created out of nothing it's like magic but it's just you know it's it's the result of countless hours of, of practice and of thinking and of natural talent and of just this this sort of incomprehensible combination of a bazillion tiny little circumstances you know any anyone who does anything can can ascend to something approaching art. Totally. I want to give you my three hot take. One is about Tokyo Police Club. The first one is going to be, I think that All Points West Music Festival was the most underrated music festival lineup of all time. Was that the one that Jay-Z stepped in to replace the Beastie Boys on on the first night? I think so. It was in New York. I think it was on Governor's uh, I think you're right. I remember playing it. It was one that we did in like in between studio sessions for champ we had we weren't playing a lot of gigs but we got that offer and it, and it was a good offer and we were in new york anyway and so it was a, those shows are always a little weird because you get out there and you're like wow i've been i've been concentrating on like playing one keyboard part perfectly for two days and now i have to play, i have to play like 11 songs in 30 minutes 
But then also at the same time, you're like, oh my God, I get to play 11 songs. I just get to play a song all the way through. I don't have to try and like, you know, perfect one, one chorus riff. So I don't, I don't remember the gig that vividly, but I remember standing, I remember walking around the grounds. I remember watching other bands. I think it's the first time I saw Cage the Elephant play. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, and I think, you know, they played like to nobody in the afternoon. And I was like, who are these guys? <laughs> and like now they're freaking huge. I mean, Licky Lee was on that lineup. Santa Gold was on that lineup. We Are Scientists were on that lineup. You guys were on that lineup. It was like the most perfect indie rock lineup ever. I think Vampire Weekend played that lineup. Just so good. One band that didn't play that lineup, and this is my second of three hot takes, is Thieves Like Us. I think Thieves Like Us is probably the most underrated band of all time. I think it's criminally underrated. They were around your guys' time too. They released their hit album in 2005 and they were on Mason Kitsune records. And it's such a shame because like, I think you would really enjoy them. Just a great indie rock band. They have some like New Order influence in there. You can hear maybe like early ministry as well, but just awesome band. And third hot take is why do they call MLBs the World Series when Toronto is literally the only city that is in another country. Guess is as good as mine. Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm not on speaking terms with the Major League Baseball right now after yesterday. So that's. Oh, I was just as upset. I root for Toronto every year if it's not Baltimore. So I completely I feel yeah. Your Orioles for no reason. So sorry that we humiliated your Orioles. Oh no, I <laughs> I was all for it. I was like, yes, Toronto just won twelve to four. Thank God. <laughs> where do you where do you see the band in the next ten years? Man, it's I feel like I finally have been thinking about that now that you know we made it 15 years in. Feels like it's possible to keep going. We certainly don't want to stop. And I look around now because when I was younger, I would have thought like, oh, you know, if we're not, if by the time we're in our mid-30s, we're not like doing it, like we're not de- again, like Death Cab or the Decemberists or whoever, then like, you know, we'll probably have to get real jobs. No. But now that I'm older, I look around and I see bands like uh like the Appleseed cast or like yeah. who I mentioned earlier, bands were like, you know, they're not filling stadiums, they're not making millions, but they can, you know, they can go out there and they can tour and they can put a few hundred people in a room reliably. And you know, between those tickets and the, you know, the 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 trickle of royalties here and you know merch there sell a few t-shirts you can cobble together like a uh, maybe not quite a t te- well maybe not quite a canadian teacher salary you maybe cobble together an american teacher salary <laughs> uh ouch and you know now li- living in toronto that can get a little tricky because you cannot buy a house here for less than like one and a half million dollars so at some point in the next 10 years i'm gonna have to figure out like once they evict me from this apartment i'm gonna have to figure out where you live but at least now you know i think 10 years ago i would have been like well i need to live in a house so if the band won't pay for that i have to find something that will and now i'm like no i need to be in the band so if uh i can't live in a house in toronto i'll have to figure out where i can live in a house or what i can live in in order to keep doing music because that's that's what's important Well, what's interested me the most about you and the rest of the bandmates is it seems like you guys are all still having a lot of fun. I mean, you now are in girlfriend material. You still have Tokyo Police Club. Dave seems like he's having a blast on Instagram with his solo project. It seems like he's just like all aboard answering fan questions and just going all at it. And like, that's one thing that I've always really, really appreciated about your band is you guys like reply to like every comment on like Facebook and Instagram. Like you guys are very interactive and very generous with your fan base. So to me, it seems like you guys are having fun. You're making money, you're living life, stuff's happening. I don't know if you're going to afford like, you know, a half a million dollar house in Toronto. I mean, you know, CN Tower is getting smaller with all those bigger buildings co- coming through. But I, I just really appreciate it. Like, and even um, one other thing that I was a really big fan of about your band's like side projects was, didn't Greg have a comedy thing like some type of like satire video like novelty t-shirts or something like that yeah that was one of them he did greg did a ton of comedy stuff back when we were first starting out and you know some some funny videos he did a stand-up night he hosted an open mic night in toronto for for years that like it was every second wednesday or the first wednesday of every month something like that and that was like me and Dave, you know, that was like a standing appointment during the days, like writing champ, writing force field. That was one of the main things that we did. So that was that 
It's all a throwback, though, because I think at a certain do it, man. Doing a band is is pretty hard. Trying to get people to care about rock songs is, you know, can be an uphill battle. Trying to get people to care about stand up comedy and sketch videos is so much harder. Definitely. So- punishing and you know at least with a band if no one comes to the gig or if nobody at the gig likes it there's three other guys on stage playing loudly and you can just like sort of smile at each other and rock out if you're doing no. a and it's not going well that's like that is the quietest quiet you'll ever hear in your life so i think that at a certain point he was like i'm not gonna quit the band and like go on the road doing comedy 100 of the time and if i'm not gonna go that hard on it maybe i'll just sort of like gracefully step back from it i and love he, that he got way more interested in like uh like producing remixing songwriting you know he's really greg has a studio in his basement now does tons of cool work with bands so i think he got more and more interested in doing further music stuff and there's only so many hours of the day so he doesn't do comedy well he does plenty of comedy in the van but he doesn't do a lot of comedy for for non-band ears anymore sadly does he do stage banter during your sets? No, we've always been pretty singer only talks. I remember okay. early on, I, cause Greg doesn't have a mic, but I have a mic cause I sing backups and I would sometimes pipe in. And then at one point we had to talk <laughs> about it. We're like, maybe. And I really think I'll see bands sometimes where they all talk and it's so hard to do that. Cause I really feel like when you're at a gig, this is my personal philosophy, but I bet I like with all my personal philosophies, I believe it is true. Uh, when you're at a gig, you need someone to like lead you through it emotionally. And it doesn't have to be the singer, although it usually is, but I like it when there's one person who's like steering the ship. And so if Dave is feeling like excited and verbose and silly and loose, then the show takes on that silly, loose, verbose sort of like fun vibe at the same time, if Dave is feeling like focused and terse, then the show gets like a little sharper. And I don't like interrupting that with like me saying some shit to the mic or like, or sorry to whatever you can beep it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can swear on, I don't know. It's, it's modern times. But uh, you know, it's like, I feel like there's, you need to have the vibe and the more people who start piping in, the less clear the vibe is, unless the band is really, 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 really unified and how they're going to do it. And like, I don't think I've ever seen a band that is. Final last question for you is, who should I have on my show next? I, I think you should have find someone else that you're as psyched about as Tokyo Police Club. I mean, I feel like that's 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 what should guide you. You're obviously, if I may say so, you're you're guided by your enthusiasm. Thieves like us on. They have. I just looked them up on on Spotify. They had a record out a couple of years ago. Yeah. Okay. I'll do that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Graham, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for for all your thoughtful questions and for all your kind words. It's it's really sweet of you. It's always nice to hear, as you can imagine. My pleasure. Thank you to people of all races, ages, genders, and galaxies for tuning in. My name is James Richard Lane. If you have any questions, feedback, or recommendations of who I should have on my show next, reach out to me on Instagram at James Richard Lane or Twitter, James Lane, Lane with two E's. Have a great week. And as always, please support your local animal shelter. Goodbye.